Chris O'Connor here. Join the Curmudgeon Rock Report's invite-only curmudgeonly community at facebook.com slash curmudgeonrock. Also look out for a Spotify playlist that pays honor to this episode. This is the Curmudgeon Rock Report, and this is your podcast made by rock geek iconoclastic outsiders for rock geek iconoclastic outsiders. For those of you who lament that rock music has gone the way of jazz and slipped into niche genre status, we are here to keep that flame alive by providing insight, analysis, recommendations, and honest takes, not hot takes. And hey, there's a good chance you'll learn some rock history you never knew before. In our last episode, we discussed at length the birth of hip-hop. And as I'm sure you all know, hip-hop is one of the few, if any, genres whose origins and roots can be traced to one specific place and city. New York City. Well, yours truly curmudgeons got to thinking. A city that has been the cultural center of the world for over 100 years surely must have inspired hundreds of songs and all kinds of music. Transfer that idea to our beloved rock music, and we came up with the title of this episode, The Top 40 Rock Songs About or In New York City. The qualifications are right there in the title. These have to be songs that either are about New York or take place in New York, with enough lyrical references to lead one to believe that the subject of the song is surrounded by the Big Apple. Secondly, they must be rock songs and all its subgenres that come with it. Folk rock, blues rock, prog rock, pop rock, punk rock, new wave, indie rock, etc. Even R&B, soul, and funk, very close relatives of rock, are thrown into the mix. No jazz, no Broadway musicals or show tunes. There are thousands of New York City songs from that vein. And besides, I freaking hate musicals and show tunes. This is a rock podcast, goddammit. And no, hip-hop is not represented either. As much as we love hip-hop, let's be honest. If we include great hip-hop songs about or taking place in New York, that would be like... 300 songs taking up five whole episodes. You want to talk about Nas's NY State of Mind? Dude, the entire Illmatic album is about New York. And that's just one of many. So, without further ado, let us begin our curmudgeonly journey through the rock and roll heart of New York and its rock and roll soul as we bring you the top 40 rock songs about or in New York City. Welcome to the Curmudgeon Rock Report. I want to wake up in a city that doesn't sleep. Well, once upon a time, Arturo and I both did wake up in that city. And oh, how we miss the heart. Yeah, New York City, man. Those were the days. We were there for like more than half a decade. Yeah, we were. And, you know, I was there twice. Uh, I was there 09 to 02. And then I came back uh, for 05 to 07 and had the, the privilege and 
at the time what I was calling the modern day two bedroom in the East Village, otherwise known as I lived in the living room. Uh, <laughs> it was it was something. But uh, yeah, there's there's something about that city that uh, is is it's all about the experience. And we'll get into that with these songs that New York is not a place that you that you live in. Uh, it's it's all about how you experience it, and there, right. there's nothing else like it. There, it. It's the most interactive city I can right. think of because of its uniqueness. Because it's it's this tall, thin city. Like even out in the boroughs, it's tall and thin. Uh, right. And so I think it defines. And not only that, but you have this uh, simultaneous glitziness and scuzziness. And, oh yeah. Uh, and so I think that the it's a city that's full of dichotomies and contradictions yeah absolutely and it's also the city you know everybody that's not from there won't won't understand this but uh for all our our folks that do live in new york holla holla uh no one can understand that it's the most anonymous city in the world i've never i've never felt more anonymous in my life living in yeah, New York. Yeah, it's just so many people that you actually feel lonely. And that is a theme on several of these songs. Oh, absolutely. And it well, not necessarily anonymous. Yeah, lonely is the dark side of it, but the light side is anonymous. In other words, you know, you, you realize once you're there like a month or two, you realize nobody gives a fuck about you. So you can do whatever <laughs> the fuck you want because nobody's right. paying attention. Uh, right. and, and there's a certain freedom to that. So Unless you're making some kick-ass music and then some snooty village voice rock critics will notice you. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, hello, Bob. Uh, uh, that, that that said, uh, you know where else they'll notice uh, uh, people and you know where else Wait. they have rock critics. Where is that? The Parallel Universe. And yeah. Where they have, where they have good music critics. Yes, and rock critics that have jobs. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's an increasingly uh, rare uh, thing, unfortunately, uh, as arts coverage dies. But hey, that, that's a topic, topic for another day. Yes, we are here in the parallel universe uh, where rock is the king of the universe and is on the billboards and in the arenas and in the stadiums. It's not Taylor Swift that's in a giant stadium. It's Ty Siegel. Gosh, could you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 a stadium show with Ty Siegel. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna say that would be one. That would be one gnarly audience. I gotta say, yeah, a drugged yeah. out audience. Too, yeah, no, no, all serious, the, seriously, all the stuff I've read about some of his shows. Yeah, seriously, <laughs> sign me up. So, yep. So that's a long way of saying that this is the segment in the uh, every episode where we cover uh, new and newish albums of uh, of some interest. Uh, sometimes the recommendations, uh, sometimes they're just uh, examinations of things that are interesting and should interest you. Uh, and that's kind of what's going on in, in this uh, episode. Although we're starting with reverence first. Uh, our resident goatologist is back at it with, uh, <laughs> n- with new music by uh, Goat. Yeah. Um, there is probably no music podcast in the world that talks about the Swedish psychedelic rock band <laughs> Go- more than this one. Probably I'll tell not. you that. Well, we're at it again. Why? Because just recently this band released an EP called Seu Sangue, which is Portuguese for your blood, spelled S-E-U space S-A-N-G-U-E. Uh, The first four tracks are remixes of songs from last year's excellent album, Oh Death. And the last song is the title track, which is what I'm covering and recommending here. 
The band shows their lyrical diversity since the song is entirely in Portuguese in keeping with the title. Musically, it's an entrancing, beguiling slice of lush psych folk with the sound of seagulls chirping at the beginning and leading into a lovely airy tune with synthesized cello underpinning the whole track. There's even the inevitable flute solo halfway yep. through that adds to the song's lysergic feel. It's a song that really wouldn't feel out of place on and probably should have been included in Odeth. Chris? Yeah, uh, if there was such a thing as a psychedelic Ren fair, this would be the house band. Uh, <laughs> for sure. That That's one of the reasons I love them. They, they, they have this yeah. sort of... Uh, uh, mixed uh, sensibility where they do bring in that folk but boy that they acid tinge the shit out of it it's uh yeah it's really marvelous and and the seagulls there's something poignant about the uh about those electric seagulls that yeah uh, that both uh, yeah. begin and end the track so mm -hmm. uh, really strong i gotta tell you though i you know the ep itself is pretty good uh, i'm actually a bigger fan of a standalone single that they just released called unemployment office uh, oh, you know, they, they released that. Yeah. It's, it's a really strong little, it's three minutes, 24 seconds of, uh, psychedelic pop goodness. It actually reminds me of Brian Jonestown massacre type of, mm. uh, hypnotic, uh, rhythm type track. Uh, I, well, I, I mean, the goat goat have really picked up the baton that Anton Newcomb dropped quality wise a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. And it, but it's the same kind of exercise where it all springs from the rhythm and it's, there's. There's, uh, you know, it's it's all it's all in the trance. It it it, it draws you in to right. to expand your mind, so to speak, and it's it's right. a, a really deliberate thing. So, uh, folks, I would go definitely on the streaming services and on YouTube. Check out Unemployment Office as well as Su You say it again for me. Seu, seu. It's Portuguese. Seu sangue. Seu sangue. Why, why, why do you sound like Austin Powers when you say that? Well, I don't know. Because I'm 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 a sexy man. <laughs> Oh, okay, okay then. Uh, you know, you, you you have the voice, I have the teeth. Go figure. Uh, so uh, there you go. Uh, definitely check out uh, Goat's uh, latest slice of psychedelic goodness. And so now we segue into uh, here. I, I say that we do this because it's interesting and it's noteworthy uh, more than it is great. Uh, we hesitate to recommend it wholeheartedly. But given the fact that we dedicated an entire episode a year ago to the band, the OCs, uh, we would be derelict in our duty if we did not cover new music by the OCs. So uh, that said, uh, give it up for Mr. John Dwyer and the OCs uh, uh, latest record called Intercepted Message. Now, uh, Dwyer is in a little bit of a transitional phase. I mean, he had a streak of about nine or 10 years where he kind of discovered prog rock and sort of just sort of built uh, contours and layers and uh, stylistic uh, uh, features that were very unique, uh, such as uh, two drummers, uh, two drummers on uh, on prog rock, stoner rock anthems was, was pretty unique. And he built on that uh, all the way through 2020's Protean Threat. Well, in the last few years, he seems to be looking for his next, uh, he's, he's in a transition and he's in a segue. Uh, last year, he came out with a, a nice, uh, almost charming 22-minute long punk album called The Foul Form that really was hardcore uh, hardcore punk. It sounds like he made it for about 50 bucks on a Memorex. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so we had that. Now, it's he's the latest uh, person to discover synthesizers. 
and and keys. And so now he's in this phase where it's not you can't call this album proc prog. You can't call it psychedelic. Uh, it's definitely not punk. And thankfully, it's not really the synth pop of the 80s. Uh, it's not part of that revivalist movement that, uh, good God, I wish it would end. I mean, you know, make it stop, make it stop. I you know, know. it's Japanese, been going on for more than a decade now, a little yeah, bit more. Japanese Breakfast and All Vays and all those bands that uh, everybody seems to love except you and me. <laughs> which which why we're the curmudgeons we're, we're statler and waldorf up in the uh up in the balcony because damn it we're right i hated fucking that kind of synth pop back in the early 90s that's why grunge washed it away for a while yeah I, although I, I i will say madonna uh i'll give it well, up madonna, madonna. Was good because yeah. madonna could write songs yeah madonna could definitely write songs but anyway the ocs are not doing that on this they're it's basically hard rock songs uh, that he uses synthesizers to uh, accentuate and uh, bring to effect. And uh, that would work a lot better if there were like the songs uh, yeah. <laughs> to, to accompany them. Uh, and so that's, that's really the problem with this record. It's, it's, it's basically bash out rock uh, that's, uh, that's driven by synthesizers and that has sort of the, that sort of looping uh, cars uh, type of uh, synth uh, going on. And uh, so the first half, it's like him finding his footing. And so it's a lot of, it's a lot of motif without much uh, diversity or right. di diversifying. And mm -hmm. it's almost like uh, Zappa breaks without Zappa songs. <laughs> and, and it keeps going that, but then gently and gradually by mid album he seems to find his stride and things get a lot better uh until the very end when it uh it just sort of melts away into just pure cheesiness with him you know, let's just put it this way dwyer uh, he he should not try to ever be a crooner uh <laughs> dwyer is no crooner and he tries it on the song uh, always at night which is completely abominable it's right at the end of the record but uh, before then, there are some highlights. Uh, you've got the rumbling title track, Intercepted Message, that has a keyboard loop that resembles a siren, and it also has well-placed hand claps. It's a fun song, uh, really really just energetic, uh, almost surf-rocky uh, type of song. So that's good. Uh, probably the best song on the record is called Goon. Uh, certainly the most punk thing on the record, and it's Dwyer at his growly best on the choruses. And then another song that I really like, uh, which is a fun little garage nugget called Chaos Heart. And, you know, I said it's uh, there's some Zappa going on on this record. And but this is the best indication of Zappa because there's this a little bit of fuzzy uh, and fuzzed out guitar with some sardonically upbeat chimes and keys. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it kind of evokes like S San Alfonso's uh, era uh, uh, Zappa from the early 70s. That's or, not you know, my favorite era of Zappa, to be honest yeah, with you. Yeah, on, on the slime. I, I didn't say it was my favorite. Uh, my favorite is before that, uh, you know, Hot yeah. Rats and Uncle Meat, right. like the late 60s. Yeah. But but he has that apostrophe overnight sensation. And so I think you can tell that uh, Dwyer reveals that in this album to be somewhat of an influence uh, on these proceedings. But again, it, it's, it's, a, it's a cute record. It's got some interesting stuff. He's he has a few moments of brilliance, but overall the songs just aren't there the way they have been the last decade. Right. Uh, all I can say is anybody expecting Toe Cutter Thumbbuster will be greatly greatly disappointed. 
uh, in this latest OC's Volley, Arthur. Yeah. yeah, I'm a huge fan of this band in general. In fact, it was my idea to devote a whole episode to this band last year, like you mentioned already. Uh, and that's why it saddens me to say that I this is their worst album in over 10 years. With the previous album, um, the one that you mentioned, Foul Form, it seemed that John Dwyer was doing straight up, straightforward punk rock. Uh, and some of it hardcore of the mid to late 1970s variety. With this one, it seems like he's going down the rock and roll history timeline <laughs> and taking on the late 70s, early 80s synth pop. <laughs> yeah. Um, the twist on it all is that it's really your vintage traditional OC song, song structures, revved up verses, revved up guitar solos, or in this case, synth solos as the chorus repeat, repeat again, etc. Just yeah. with 1980s synthesizer sounds drenched all over them, except they're not even the cool, gritty synth pop sound of the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. It's the cheesy cornball variety of synth pop yeah. of, or of synthesizer sound. Aside from that, it also seems that every three or four albums, Dwyer and company fall into a rut where their sound is recycled and the band sounds tired. We saw this most recently with 2017's Orc. They bounced back from that with a series of albums in the late teens that explored the heavier, edgier side of progressive rock, i.e. with strong doses of metal and jazz fusion thrown yeah. in. So what does that mean for the OCs going forward? Will the next album follow down the rock history timeline and take us to mid-1980s UK indie <laughs> jangle pop a la the Smiths? Yeah, I was um, going to say. The OCs back. are Smiths. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, Dwyer singing like Morrissey. You know what? That would be an improvement on this turkey of a record. Chris here again. We usually end our episodes by inviting you to join our curmudgeonly community page on Facebook. Well, we're picking up our efforts there. Know people just as passionate as us about rock and roll? Invite them to join in the fun. You don't actually need our permission to do so. Also, expect to see a lot more content up there moving forward. Our mission is to engage you, so darn it, we'll engage you like a fire hose. Or maybe like a firehouse, if we're going to give love to Gene Simmons. We may also be making a few offers. Want to wear a t-shirt featuring our logo? You may have that opportunity soon. So be a fellow curmudgeon, help us expand our little community, and share your own musings via your own posts. We're at facebook.com slash groups slash curmudgeon rock. And now... The only time you will ever hear yours truly curmudgeons evoke anything that has anything to do with a top 40. <laughs> now we have the top 40 songs about New York City. And uh, this will be fun. Uh, basically, the format here is his lightning round. Arturo will introduce the song, give you a couple of sentences, and then I'll have my uh, I'll have my own thoughts uh, as we go along. It, this is a fun, really diverse yeah. Uh, list uh, that'll make you want to go out and immediately put together your own playlist, which we, by the way, we will probably do for you. Uh, so, might as well, might as well do all forty songs. Yeah, do all forty songs. 
Okay, so let's get going. Arturo. Oh, by the way, before we get going, it's top 40 rock songs about or taking place in New York. Yeah, expand a little bit on why you you stayed away. Well, obviously, we know why we stayed away from hip hop. But uh, I'll say it's, this. Yeah, it's too much. Like, I, I said it in the parameter setter. Um, if we do great hip hop songs about or taking place in New York, that would be like 300 songs taking <laughs> taking five episodes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, cover. pretty much. Yeah, we'd have an we'd have an entire series that would last us like three months. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, and, and also no jazz or Broadway musical jazz. Again, too many. Let's focus on rock, and I fucking hate Broadway musicals, so fuck that. Yeah, well, I was going to say, I, I, you know, you, you still haven't uh, uh, caught on to Hamilton, which is one of my favorite albums of, uh, of, the, of the 2000s. So uh, once you catch on to that, you, your opinion may change. But be that as it may, what's number 40? Number 40 is Sting with Englishmen in New York from 1988. The single came out in 88. Uh, The album that the song is on came out the year before, 1987. I'm not a huge fan of Solo Sting, but this moderate hit from the late 1980s is a soft rock jazz pop number that rather breezily and effortlessly captures and evokes the feeling of how lonely and isolating New York City can be, which is a cruel irony considering how many millions of people live in the city. This feeling of otherness is amplified when you do a little research and find out that Sting isn't singing about himself here, but rather from the point of view of a good friend of his at the time, the openly gay English writer Quentin Crisp, who had moved to an apartment in the Lower East Side section of the Bowery shortly before this song came out. Chris? Be yourself, no matter what they say, uh, is a lyric uh, from this song. and. And really, that 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 kind of captures uh, the spirit of of being a a non-native New Yorker figuring out what the hell the city is about, right? And it's a sentiment that's so universal. I mean, you could pretty much you could fill in and, and call this song "I'm a Duluth native in New York" or you know <laughs> I'm you know I'm a Schenectady guy in New York. Uh, I'm a Syracuse guy in New York, like yeah, you were. <laughs> yeah, ex- ex- exactly. Or a Miami guy in New York, like you were. Yeah. I mean, that's essentially how it is. It's just there's a universality of that experience of being different and non-native. And it's the best. In, I still think it's the best and fastest moving city in the world. And and really, uh, jazz, I would say, is an inspired touch for such a song. I mean, there's a point of mood yeah. uh, that comes along with realizing that you know there is that learning curve uh, of of being alone uh, in the city so good stuff yeah yeah speaking of englishmen in new york number 39 john lennon with his song new york city from 1972 in 1969, the Beatles put out a funky little acoustic boogie of a single called The Ballad of John and Yoko, which was a sizable hit that summer. Lyrically, the song is a travelogue about all the events surrounding Lennon's wedding with Yoko Ono, getting married in Gibraltar, having a honeymoon in Paris, doing their bed-in, promoting peace in Amsterdam, etc. Well, Lennon took that same approach on this song, detailing the events surrounding his and Yoko's move to New York in early 1972, meeting political activist Jerry Rubin, meeting a New York City cop, playing at Max's Kansas City in Midtown with his new band Elephant's Memory, riding the Staten Island Ferry, visiting the Fillmore, visiting the Apollo, cycling in Greenwich Village, 
Lenin vividly portrays the funky, far-out bohemian panacea that we all imagine early 70s New York to have been, and it's a kick-ass 1950s-style rocker, too, off his very underrated Sometime in New York album. Chris? Yeah, well, I, I don't think it's that underrated. I mean, this is the highlight of an otherwise mediocre record, and it's nihilistic rock at its best. Uh, in tribute uh, in music, it's a tribute to Chuck Berry, uh, very yeah. Chuck, Chuck, Chuck Berry influenced. And sure. like you said, it's it's really an ode to the freaks and the geeks uh, yeah. of the city. And it's 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 I think it's that thrill, that initial thrill of, of of going there and finding all of those things that you mentioned that he talks about in those songs. And he makes it clear that it's a personal journey to yeah. you know settling into the city. And so. Uh, it, it, it's re it's really kind of a neat, uh, you know, given that Lennon is such a, uh, a, a strong character in, in the history of rock and roll, kind of, right. uh, you know, him being autobiographical that way. It's kind of fun yeah. to, to kind of go along with him on that. Definitely. Ode to Freaks and Geeks. Number 38. Yeah. Speaking of the Freaks and Geeks, they come out to play in the next song. Number 38, Tom Waits and his song Union Square from 1985. This is the first of two Tom Waits songs on this list, both off of his masterpiece album, Rain Dogs. This is a whirling dervish of a song that depicts a seedy scene of gay prostitutes and drag queens hanging out in Union Square looking to pick up tricks. Even off-duty cops get involved in the action, oh, yeah. as this is a bluesy stomper of good old-fashioned rock and roll that feels as gritty as its subject matter. Chris? Yeah, my favorite song on, on Union Square, or excuse me, on Rain Dogs. Rain Dogs yeah. yeah, it's my favorite song off Rain Dogs, and it's, uh, like I said, it's just rollicking. It just, you know, has that, like you said, it's got that blues rock thing. It's almost, you know, Tom, Tom Waits in the middle of his Burholt Breck phase decides that he's going to be a band, you know, just be a punk uh, band leader here uh, <laughs> yeah. for, for a song. And I, yeah. I always love, I mean, that 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 one little earworm that's always stuck in my head. Half Puerto Rican Chinese. <laughs> uh, you know, it's you know, it's just yeah. kind of kind of a fun uh, image. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, good stuff. And it, it makes me miss Union Square. Union Square. I used to love. There was a Barnes oh, and Noble. Great to hang out in. Yeah. Yeah. There was a Barnes and Noble right there uh, that I used to spend lots of time in. And mm. uh, Saturdays was always fun because that was the market out there. And, you know, we, you know, the. I lived with a, a photographer, his roommate of mine, who was an Irish photographer who used to uh, stake out a spot every Saturday at 4 a.m. Uh, he would yeah. stake out a spot just so he could get prime position to go sell his stuff. So <laughs> I, I bought weed there a few times, too. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sure you did. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what parts of Manhattan did you not buy weed in during that streak? Yeah. Well, speaking of, well, these people, I don't think these guys ever smoke pot. But anyway, no. number 37, Vampire Weekend with the song Hudson from the year 2013. If someone were to ask who is the uh, the definitive New York City rock band of the early 20th century, the answer would probably be either The Strokes, Vampire Weekend, or LCD Sound System. All three of these bands are represented on this list. And this song is off of Vampire Weekend's excellent album, Modern Vampires of the City. It's a lyrically impressionistic track about how New York City has this alluring ability to make people want to change their identities and reinvent themselves. Oh, yeah. With, with its lyrical references to the Hudson River, Riverside, and Sutton Place, main vampire Ezra Koenig paints a picture as stark and as gray as the album cover. The eerie electro-indie arrangement 
adds to the song's creepy ambiance. Chris? Yeah, I, I like the fact that it's both ethereal and mechanical all at once. Yeah. And I, yeah. I think that that's a good way of, of capturing uh, New York, especially the neighborhoods that he's talking about there, the sort of the right. upper uh, the upper part of it. Uh, if you've ever been in there, it, you know, I remember one time because uh, I lived in West Harlem for a while, which is just north yeah. of there. And I bought weed there, too. I, I'm sure you did, uh, probably <laughs> when you were visiting me uh, <laughs> and walking around at 6 a.m. in the morning where you get a morning fog in that area. There is a, a certain spookiness uh, to that neighborhood. Uh, and I think that uh, at least musically. Uh, this uh, this song kind of captures uh, that feel and, and that aesthetic. So good stuff. Yeah, definitely. 36. 30, yes, number 36. This is an old one. Oh, yeah. Fred Neal with the song Bleaker and McDougal from 1965. Yep. Fred Neal was one of the mainstays of New York City's Greenwich Village folk scene in the early 1960s. The same scene that gave us Ramblin' Jack Elliott, The Lovin' Spoonful, and of course, a young Bob Dylan. Neal's most known songs were made famous by other singers, most notably Harry Nilsson with Everybody's Talking, made famous in the 1969 movie Midnight Cowboy, and Tim Buckley with his lovely rendition of Dolphins from 1973. This song, mentioning two of the main streets down in the NYU part of the village, where I, where I lived for a little while, has a surprisingly common theme among New York songs, and that's of wanting to actually leave the city. Yep. Uh, Neil Young, uh, Neil Young, Fred Neil <laughs> rambles on about standing on a lonely village street corner, longing to be with his woman in Coconut Grove, which I presume is Coconut Grove in Miami. Yeah. Um, it's, a, it's a rollicking folk rock number with the Love and Spoonfuls John Sebastian on harmonica. Chris? Yeah, I, I did not know that about John Sebastian, but it kind of figures because those the, those guys were buddies. Uh, yeah, yeah I, I just find it kind of funny. Well, one, the album cover, uh, well, you, know, <laughs> you look at the album cover and you're like, hey, that is Bleaker and McDougal. Holy shit. Uh, it, it's a pretty distinct looking corner uh, yeah. down there. And uh, but it is kind of funny that he has the song about being on Bleaker and McDougal, wishing he was in, of all fucking places, Coconut Grove. It's not about <laughs> the, it's not about the place. It's about the girl. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, let's make that clear. Uh, so yeah, and you said it, there, there is a theme there. There's this transcend, there's, there's this longing for the transcendent of some transcendence of somewhere else. You know, you right. get, you get caught up in the day to day rather than the whimsical. And uh, right. that, that's a common experience from being there. You know, there's just days where living in New York just sucked, but then yeah. there were, there were other days where I was like, you know what, you know, there's no, no place I'd, I'd, I'd rather live. There's a great place to be when you're uh, in your mid twenties. Right. For sure. Oh. Totally, totally. Yeah. Number 35, Don Henley with New York Minute from 1989. As our listeners would know, this is a very Eagles-friendly podcast. However, I've never been enamored by Don Henley's solo catalog except for a handful of songs. Nevertheless, it would seem a bit ignorant to leave off this mellow slice of let's call it yacht rock balladry <laughs> with mm. all its uh, lyrical references to wall street subway stations walking through central park and of course the ever popular phrase a new york minute chris why do you like this song so much 
Well, one, I think it's like about just about the most eagleish song in Don Henley's entire solo catalog, <laughs> which uh, no surprise, it became a staple of Eagles songs once they got back together in the 90s. Right. Uh, right. You know, kind of their, their shows that fit right in. You know, it, it was built for uh, Timothy B. Schmidt's high uh, uh, harmony vocals. In a uh, New York minute. Ooh. Yeah. You know, like, you know, here comes Timothy B. Schmidt. He's all about the ooh. Uh, but yeah but he makes the point that the a new york minute does move more slowly than your average minute that there there is a drama and a story to be had there uh everything can get uh, can change and get a little strange but not necessarily in the blink of an eye and i think mm. that henley really captures that uh, on on this song i didn't realize it was from 1989 i thought it was yeah uh, i didn't realize it was on the end of the innocence it, it yeah. sounds like it would have been earlier so mm. kind of shows you you know he was kind of yeah, Don Henley is an anachronism. He was stuck in 1984 and 1989. Go figure. <laughs> Number 34, The Strokes with their song New York City Cops from 2001. This is an interesting one. This song off of their classic debut album, Is This It?, isn't really about New York. And you can only assume it takes place in New York because, well, it is The Strokes. <laughs> um, it's about a one night stand that hits a little too hard, so hard that it makes frontman Julian Casablancas want to, you guessed it, leave this town. Um, the infamous chorus of New York City cops, they ain't too smart. It just seems like an irreverent off-the-cuff joke. Nevertheless, it rocks with the bouncy new wave pop thrill that the Strokes' early records were famous for. Chris? Yeah, the song is more about a conversation uh, with with a woman that he's uh, thinking about uh, breaking up with or, like you said, taking off uh, from yeah. town. And so it's, it's almost like a conversational thing, almost like they're, they're hearing a couple of cops on the street. And he's just like sort of, oh, yeah, you know, random thought. It's it's, it's very ADHD in that yeah. way. Uh, one thing to note, by the way, is that uh, because is this it came out a little bit after 9-11, or right. around the same time as 9-11, uh, they had to remove this song from Is This It? Mm -hmm. And I can't yeah. remember exactly what replaced it, but I know that uh, my version of the album, the one I bought on CD, had this. So either, mm -hmm. either it was a European version that I bought from other music, or it yeah. actually was a version of Is, the, uh, Is This It? That Like a very early version before they were able to make the, uh, the switch. So, mm -hmm. uh, so I felt right. so I felt so cool because of that. You know, <laughs> did you have the version that had the hand on the woman's backside? I did. Yes, I did. Okay. I, I did yeah. not have the more anodyne uh, 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 cleaned up cover. I didn't have right. the uh, the the orange and blue. I I had the butt. All right. Cool. All right. Number thirty three. Steely Dan with Daddy Don't Live in That New York City No More from 1975. Now, Steely Dan are known as a, as a quintessential Los Angeles band. But in fact, the main men of the Dan, Donald Fagan and Walter Becker, grew up in New York. It's odd that they rarely wrote songs about their hometown, but one of those rarities showed up as one of the standout tracks off the album Katie Lied. Amidst a background of sleazy blues funk, Fagin sings in the voice of a character who's a small town hood and gangster doing menial schlep work and yearns again <laughs> to get out of New York, but knows he never can. Chris? Yeah, there's a couple of great lyrics in uh, uh, on this record uh, or on this song. Uh, he don't celebrate Sunday on a Saturday night no more. 
that that that's a great drinking line and then the yeah. the the line about drinking his dinner from a paper sack mm. and uh yeah. which you know suggests that the protagonist of the song is a real sad sack yeah uh, there's there's not a whole lot of uh not a whole lot of joy uh, going on here, even though it's a fun song. It's a fun little blues song. I, I, I always love the little lick, the guitar lick on it. It's it's yeah. it's, it's fun and uh, great vocal by uh, Donald Fagan. You know, kind of almost like a woozy, uh, yeah, woozy echo to it. So good stuff. Yeah, number thirty-two, Aretha Franklin with her version of Spanish Harlem from 1971 by the way another place where i bought weed uh this is a song <laughs> that uh, uh jerry lieber and mike stoller wrote for the soul singer ben e king back in 1960 it wasn't the big hit king expected it to be that would come the next year with stand by me but it became a huge hit for aretha franklin when she put it out when she put out her version in 1971 with New York City, Spanish Harlem, basically East Harlem from East 96th Street to East 135th Street, as the romantic background for a man finally finding the woman he loves, Aretha's version is as vibrant, funky, and upbeat as they come. Chris? Yeah, it, the song is basically a spiritual cousin to Rocksteady. Yeah, uh, probably from the same session. It just has that, it's a faster tempo than Benny King's version. Actually, it blows Benny King's version away. Uh, faster yeah. tempo and it's got that skittering percussion and punchy organ it's just uh yeah. you know aretha is a soul soul sister singer number one uh yeah. re really 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 great and uh, again you know to, just taking a, a, a lieber stoller song that's pretty cheesy uh you know, <laughs> yeah. talk, talk, you know basically in benny king's hands it is a show tune in aretha's yeah. uh, hands it's an r&b song more power right. to the queen Again, fuck show tunes. <laughs> number yeah. thirty, number thirty-one, the Avid Brothers with "I and Love and You" from two thousand nine. Now, I've never been a fan of this folk rock group, but even I'll admit this unabashedly sentimental piano ballad is pretty moving. You won't find many songs that gush about the healing properties of just being in Brooklyn. I prefer Queens myself, but hey, to each their own. Chris? Yeah, it definitely is an ode to, uh, you know, a lot of people move to New York to get away from what they're doing. It's it's a really great place to, because of the anonymity, you can go to New York and find yourself. You can lose yourself and find yourself. And so it's, yeah. you know, renewal from a tragic condition. And what a what a hook. I always love that Brooklyn, Brooklyn, take me in. Yeah. Uh, tremendous hook. Uh, you know, it's just very sing-songy and it's just a very engaging engaging song and uh yeah it it's one of those things that yeah I'm, I'm with you art I'm, I'm much more of a queens guy than a brooklyn guy but yeah. uh for the brooklyn people it was like uh, it was a national anthem for a year yeah. or two there when it came yeah. out it was i was in law school i think it's like 2009 or something right. like that yeah uh so yeah uh, another another really good song all right good now, again number 30 vampire weekend again with their song A-Punk from 2008, A-Punk. Vampire Weekend are back on this list, this time with one of their most famous songs off their self-titled debut album. The Hudson River is name-checked again, as is the Sloan Kettering Cancer Hospital in Manhattan and Washington Heights. I also bought weed there as well, which is where the main character, Johanna, moves to after she breaks up with the narrator of the song. 
Musically, it has all the hallmarks of the band's then patented spiky, bouncy take on the kind of uh, South African pop that Paul Simon brought to the mainstream in the 1980s. Chris? Yeah, this definitely proves that uh, Paul Simon was an influence, but this song is also Baroque as fuck. Uh, It's uh, just really, it's one of my favorite songs uh, of the entire 2000s. I think it belongs on the short list of of the best uh, songs on it. It's just, it just has this, uh, this, this kick-ass little uh, jam to it. It's just a a funky, funky rhythm, but, but also it, 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 it's weird because it, it manages to evoke Paul Simon and like the Ramones simultaneously. It's yeah, uh, yeah, 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 kind of kind of a neat feat. And yes, folks, it is more than just the opening credit song to the movie Step Brothers. <laughs> I didn't know that. OK. All right. Number 29, XTC with Statue of Liberty from 1978. Speaking of bouncy and spiky in the late 1970s, just when punk rock was raging, Swindon, England's XTC introduced an original brand of angular, quirky new wave pop that had never been heard before. They were lyrically literate and very, very cutting with a sardonic wit and humor that they would cultivate throughout the rest of their career. It's especially evident in this track off their debut album, White Noise, in which singer-lyricist Andy Partridge fawns over and dreams of making love to New York City's iconic Statue of Liberty. Far from contrived sexual perversion, I've always interpreted this song as a sly commentary on the commercial exploitation of national monuments. Chris? Yeah, in in some ways you're right about that, but hey, uh, who knew the old statue could trigger such a kinky fantasy? about her you know uh, I, lo- I love the whole imagery of uh, being impaled on her hair uh, that just uh, I think he's just having some song but yeah I hadn't thought about that, that in terms of uh, the perversion of the monuments and the sort yeah. of the uh, taking things like the Statue of Liberty or, or even over in uh, their native England you know the yeah. uh, you know, Big Ben or anything like yeah, that right. but that's right. that's an interesting point but still uh, I, I just take it as, as a cheeky uh, sexual fantasy, uh, mm. sar- sardonic wit type of song. Mm, right. All right. Well, speaking of kinky, you get a little bit of this in the next song. Number 28, Genesis with The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway from 1974. This is the title track from the last album Peter Gabriel did with Genesis before drummer Phil Collins took over vocal and frontman duties. It's a concept album and coming-of-age story about a young Puerto Rican boy named Rael. There are no Puerto Ricans named Rael, but anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Rael, who arrives in New York City, who goes through all kinds of bizarre and life-changing adventures. There are many New York songs about being an outsider plopped in the middle of the depraved madness of the city, and this song follows in that tradition. Personally, I've never been a fan of this album and still believe everything this indulgent double album wants to express is already expressed in just this one song. Chris? Yeah, I, it, basically, it's this. If you don't need to hear the album, folks. Just seek out this song and that's all you need because it, it yeah. really the song is the album uh, yeah. in terms of thematically. They kind of beat it to death. It's like, oh, you're in the middle of Times Square and, and you don't belong. Oh, okay. You know, uh, and, but it's, it's, there's a fitting energy and you know, look, I think Genesis, it's the butt of many, many jokes, but in some ways it's undeserved. I think that they're, you know, their stuff, 
uh, certainly was adventurous. And, you know, obviously they had a streak there when it was just the, the, the trio with uh, Phil mm. Collins, Rutherford, uh, you know, then and Banks. Yeah. I mean, when yeah. they had they, that version that was actually really, really good uh, for a while. So mm. uh, Genesis does deserve its props. I think I do like this song. Uh, it's got a it's got a panache to it and it's mm. got a it's got a in, inherent drama to it. But I it also kind of proves that Phil Collins could drum. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it, he, it, yeah. he was a great drummer. Yeah. yeah. Really, really great rhythmic stuff uh, going on here. But uh, yeah, Rael, <laughs> you, <laughs> you, 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 you sure you didn't mean Raphael there, dude? <laughs> yeah yeah peter gabriel he has never met you well, at that point he had probably never met a latino person yeah anyway, <laughs> uh number 27 lou reed with dirty boulevard from 1989 if someone asked you who the definitive quintessential new york city rock star was and your answer was or is anyone other than lou reed you would be wrong yes <laughs> um old lou takes the cake here with three songs on this list this one is from his 1989 album new york the entire album is a song cycle that takes place in the city and it's one of his best solo albums however this track is one of if not the most powerful song on the whole thing it's a meditation on the poverty that many immigrant families in the city face and it's a story told through the eyes of a young boy named Pedro or Pedro who dreams of flying away amidst the backdrop of children selling plastic roses for a dollar, prostitutes offering themselves to cops and a father who beats him with a coat hanger. Uh, for a man who was notoriously apolitical in the 1970s, middle-aged Lou ended up being quite the sympathetic bleeding heart liberal. Chris? Yeah, he did. And yeah, you're right. There is sort of a somberness uh, to this uh, to this album where it's uh, the transcendence that one would seek. And, and the dream is like 20 blocks away because right. it, do, it does make references to, to the to the bright lights yeah. uh, of, of the city. But here he's stuck in the darkness and, and the dirt, obviously, the, mm. the dirty boulevard. And it's right. it's one of those things that, you know, there might be the bright lights, but there's plenty of darkness. So it's it's a it's a perfect encapsulation of the New York uh, working class and uh, lower middle class or, or uh, poverty class uh, attitude right. and condition. Right. So uh, really great. And I love the riff. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. yeah it, it's a really great structured uh, song. Uh, and uh, I don't know, like I said, Lou Reed in the late 80s, early 90s, he had kind of a revival like this stuff. He had like two or three records in that period that were all very, very strong. New York being the best of them. Right. Number 26, Billy Joel with Moving Out, parentheses, Anthony's song from 1977. This comes off of Billy Joel, Long Island native Billy Joel's massive 1977 album, The Stranger. And it's another in that underrated tradition of New York songs where people just want to get the hell out. Ranking just below Lou Reed in the tier of quintessential New York City rock stars. Whenever Billy Joel is talking about getting or doing something in the city, there's no doubt he's talking about New York. <laughs> um, yep. The references to getting a house in Hackensack, New Jersey, and Sergeant O'Leary working as a bartender at Mr. Cacciatore's bar down on Sullivan Street are all you need. It's also an insanely catchy piece of pop rock that's as purely New York as a hot dog with relish bought from a Lebanese-owned hot dog stand on the corner of 42nd and Broadway, which I have 
I have done many times. Chris. Yes, and I have done many times. Although uh, you're 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 kind of uh, bastardizing things there, Nathan's man, Nathan's. <laughs> you know uh, that that's the only hot dog you need. Nathan's out in Coney Island, the original. But anyway, uh, it's it can't really be a coincidence that you have this song right in front of Dirty Boulevard, can it? <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, they're they're kind of cut from the same cloth. It's kind of, uh, boy, does this city suck to live in when you have no money. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. that's sort of the the connective uh, tissue. But, you know, I've always loved the bridge on this song with the piano. And uh, there's that. I've always loved the saxophone uh, and the use of, of that. Uh, Liberty DeVito is a very underrated drummer. And mm. so uh, really good stuff. So uh, just a, a really great, like you said, it's a great pop rock song. It's a, it's it earworm after earworm after earworm uh, right. on, on the song. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And uh, arguably should be higher on this list, actually, because it's, uh, mm. you know, because uh, remember, we, we did put this together this list from our perspective of having lived there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so there were some tough calls. And so it ends up at 26. But uh, in terms of the, the experiential uh, ness of uh, living in New York, uh, the, there's very few songs that are better than than that one. Right. Than this one. Number, yeah, I agree. Number 25. Bruce Springsteen, you knew he was coming, uh, with The Rising from 2002. Now, both yours truly curmudgeons were living as roommates in New York during the time of 9-11, and you can count this curmudgeon as someone who never fell for the wave of maudlin sentimentality that washed over not just the city uh, in the aftermath of the tragedy, but a lot of immediate post-9-11 music as well. This song, the title track to Springsteen's album of 2002, also called The, the Rising, was a big part of that. What's the song about? Well, exactly what the title says. <laughs> the rising of New York City's, and by extension, the country's morale after what happened. Not much in the way of subtlety in this song, but then again, it isn't supposed to be subtle. In later years, even I've come to acknowledge that it's a pretty moving song. Chris? Yeah, it's an extraordinarily moving song. It's uh, There are times when even thinking about this song chokes me up uh, mm -hmm. because it's it's not just about, you know, rising and, and coming back again. And, and it's not this, you know, we will we will survive kind of song. It's actually there's a religiosity to it uh, that is really surprising and incredibly moving. You know, this idea of, yes, he has imagery of, you know, sort of you know, the burning sky and uh, the hole uh, that's left and and the the, the folks that are now uh, that are now gone. And so there is this rising of, of wanting to, uh, you know, move on and do those things. But it, it really is equivalent of, you uh, talking about these folks becoming angels rising up to heaven. And right. uh, there's a universality uh, to that uh, as well. And it, it's just incredibly moving. It's just wonderful lyrics and uh, one of the best uh, chorus hooks uh, that Springsteen never had. And almost anybody's ever had, you know, that na, 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 na. Yeah. yeah. I mean, just, yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it really is. It's, it's anthemic. Uh, it's transcendent and, and again, it, and just incredibly, incredibly moving. Uh, and, you know, it's just he, the Virgin Mary does show up in the song and uh, it's just wow. Just wonder, wonderful stuff. That's all I can say. It's just incredibly moving song. Number 24, the Ramones with 53rd and 3rd from 1976 in the annals of songs that 
and the annals of history of uh, that take place in New York City, you probably won't find one as unsettling and disturbing as this song, right. taken from the Ramones' seminal self-titled debut album. The lyrics were written by bassist Didi Ramone, inspired by his early days working as a male prostitute back when he was <laughs> young. It tells the story of a Vietnam veteran who resorts to turning tricks on, yes, the corner of 53rd Street and 3rd Avenue, a popular gay prostitution pickup place at the time, because he presumably can't find work. He gets picked up but kills the customer with a razor blade and takes the cash and the cops are now after him. But at least, quote, I proved that I'm no sissy, end quote. This is the kind of gritty New York song that makes you want to take a hot shower to get the grime off after listening. Chris? Yeah, and see, the funny part is, is if you go like a block over to 53rd and Lexington, now all of a sudden it's kind of swanky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that, that Lexington and 3rd is kind of the point where, uh, where Midtown becomes the east side. And uh, so Lexington and Park and and those that's kind of where all the stuff is and the high rises and the the cool bars and the gentry. But once you start getting the third, then it gets a little it gets a little uh, more nondescript and a little scuzzier and a little, you know, like you said, like, you know, things kind of go on on the underground. Uh, It's even it's even more so when you get the second and first, but it starts at third. (laughs) So, yeah. uh, yeah, I, I did not know that about Didi Ramon that that he hmm. uh, that he did some male prostitution. But yeah, yeah, if if there's any spot where you can get away with it uh, in the city, it would be that one of those spots there, in, like Midtown East, which again is so nondescript that nobody gives a shit. You know, no, no, no you know, nobody, nobody cares. Yeah, you know, definitely. and so that's that that's a, a definite uh, advantage. To, speaking, if, sp- if you're yeah. gonna be there, go ahead. Speaking, speaking of nobody caring, this next song tackles that. Number twenty-three, James Brown, the Godfather, with "Down and Out" in New York City from 1973. The, the this song is a single off the soundtrack album James Brown did for the underrated and I think quite excellent black exploitation film Black Caesar. Oh yeah, uh, this this is another slice of the Big Apple that dwells on the dark side of quote-unquote, the hustle of the poverty and desperation that comes from being on the bottom rung of society's ladder and feeling you can never rise above your station. The song is told from the point of view of a shoeshine boy in Harlem, 125th Street and 8th Avenue, to be exact, (laughs) uh, as Brown uh, mentions in the lyric, who is resigned to his fate. Musically, it's one of Brown's most bombastic, moving, and cinematically epic songs. Awesome horn arrangement. Chris? Yeah, uh, that's what I was going to say. Awesome horn arrangement. This is uh, one of those songs that shows uh, how much influence Fred Wesley, uh, who yeah. was the trombonist in the horn section, uh, had. Uh, he was uh, Brown's musical director and arranged a lot of the songs uh, from this uh, from this period. So just really, really rousing horns. You yeah. know, they're just sort of right. in your in your face. Uh, the mm-hmm. other thing about the song, too, is it's kind of a, a, a demarcation line for Brown. But Brown, between 1967 and uh, the first part of 1973, was really enamored of the one and yeah. the, the funk, but not right. necessarily of the song in the right. in the traditional sense. A lot of great yeah. songs were re- he released, you know, some classic recordings. We just covered that uh, a few months back. But uh, this is where he starts to get more sort of uh, verse, chorus, verse again. 
right. and uh, this is one of the best uh, instances of that from this period. Uh, yeah, and you're right; it does have a cinematic, and it tells a story. Uh, and uh, I don't think Brown actually wrote it. I think Brown he either no, he did not it, write it. He did not write it, but boy did boy did he capture it. It's it, it's one of those things, man. Uh, it doesn't belong to whoever wrote it now for sure <laughs> you know james yeah. brown james brown stole that song you know and uh one last comment about it grandeur personified totally absolutely all right now fast forward to the far future number 22 saint vincent with the song new york from 2017 this electric piano ballad is one of the most moving songs on St. Vincent's 2017 album, Mass Seduction, an album that was ostensibly about being unsettled by fame and a toxic drug-fueled relationship. St. Vincent, real name Annie Clark, lived in New York for quite a while before she made it big in music, but on this track, she painfully mourns the loss of a friendship. It's usually romantic relationships that get the enveloped by New York treatment. So it's nice to hear platonic friendship being given the New York song treatment. References to First Avenue, Eighth Avenue, and Astor Place firmly put the listener uh, in mid-naughties New York, which is where Annie Clark lived before she became St. Vincent. Chris? Yeah, when she makes reference to the old Astor crew, yeah, uh, that's uh, that's breaking up and there's only a few of us left. Uh, I think all of us have been there in our in our lives, especially in our 20s, where the party is starting to end and and, and folks are starting to disappear into success. Right. And, you know, there's not a whole lot left to, to hold on to. And so and then so when you're losing those friendships for whatever reason, you know, you just kind of age out of things, you know, people, uh, you know, they they start to uh, verge or they start to uh, diverge. And so, you know, like you said, there's a mourning and a longing in this song that's actually really lovely. It, it's profane, yeah. you know, yeah. talking about the only motherfucker sure. in the city who can handle me. Yeah. But it's still it's just a, a beautiful, sentimental song about loss. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and did I mention that I also bought weed on in, in Astor Place as well? I, I, I'm, I'm sure you did that. That would be a, that would have been a good place to buy it. <laughs> uh, number 21. Tom Waits with Downtown Train, again, 1985, the second Waits song from Rain Dogs on this list. Rod Stewart had a massive worldwide hit with his version of it in 1989. But while Stewart's version has the bombast and the sentiment, Waits' original has the deeper emotion. The Downtown Train is clearly part of the New York City subway system, as Waits mentions all the Brooklyn girls trying to break out of their little worlds. The lights and the streets of the city are the backdrop for this lush poetic tale of unrequited love that hints at just a little bit of stalkerism uh, yeah. uh, with the verse within the verse with the narrator mentioning how much he knows his paramour's window, stairs, and doorway. Moving, romantic, and just a bit creepy, just like New York City itself. Yeah, you know, you you, you can't ha have a New York love song without a little bit of that creepiness or a little bit of that uh, uh, bizarre, uh, you know, sort of edge uh, to it, can you? Right. Uh, I like the guitar in this song. It's a it's surprisingly uh, strong little guitar song with you know good, right. good 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 licks, and you know weights. You know there there was some sometimes you know he had that that weird uh, gruff uh, voice of his. But there's sure. sometimes when he when he crooned in that style, 
that it actually mm. had emotional resonance uh, yeah. to it. And, you know, Rod Stewart, yeah, fine. It's, 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 a, it's a smoother arrangement. It's, mm. it's more radio friendly. And, you know, mm. Rod Stewart could sing anything. But, right. you know, and he, he, pretty, he pretties up the song. I actually kind of like the Rod Stewart version, but it's, it's pretty, uh, yeah. it, you know, yeah. that Rod Stewart kind of pretty humble pie-ish type voice. Right. But, right. but Waits doing it in Waits of Style adds, a, like you said, a particular uh, emotionalness to it or, or mo- basically makes it more honest. It, it's, a, it's an honest, uh, creepy love song. Right. And by the way, Chris, it's the faces, not humble pie that Rod. No, no, I, no, I understand that. I understand. Okay. okay. Faces (laughs) slash humble pie. I kind of, I kind of put them in the same. On this episode, we gave you the top 40 rock songs about or taking place in New York city. For the next episode, we're going to continue our second golden age of rock series. As we move on to the seminal year of 1965. Rock is exploding in all directions. Bob Dylan goes electric and instantly becomes an icon for the ages. The birds bring on folk rock. The Rolling Stones bring on edgy blues rock. The Who bring on proto-punk. Motown puts out some of the label's best singles. James Brown starts to lay down the foundation for funk. And gritty, punky garage rock bands start to spread throughout the U.S. and the U.K. And, more importantly, the Beatles take all the revolutionary musical change going on around them and use it as the basis for an evolution of musical style, sophistication, and artistry never before heard or seen. Join us next time as the Curmudgeon Rock Report brings you The second golden age of rock, 1965, a story in seven acts. Number 20. Le Tigre, or the way you say it in French, Le Tigre, with My My Metro Card from 1999. Finally, we get a lighthearted New York City song. (laughs) Uh, In the late 1990s, after the legendary feminist punk band Bikini Kill broke up, front woman Kathleen Hanna left Olympia, Washington, and settled in New York to form the electronic funk and punk outfit Le Tigre. Coming off their brilliant self-titled debut album, My My Metro Card is a glorious slice of technicolor indie dance pop that extols the virtues of having a Metro card that allows you to endlessly ride all 36 lines of New York City's subway system. Indeed, as Hannah sings in the chorus, think I'll go a little, but then I go far. And even Rudy Giuliani, who was the mayor of New York at the time, gets a shout out. Oh, fuck Giuliani, he's such a fucking jerk. With what we now know about the man, it seems Hannah was prescient. Chris? Yeah, yes, yes, she was. And uh, I love this song because a Metro card, it really is a status symbol. You know, you know oh, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm cool because I live in New York and I get to yeah. have a Metro card that I can ride anywhere at any time. Uh, <laughs> strange but true. When we first moved to the city, you remember what the price of a, a Metro card was? No, what? I forgot. 63 bucks. Jeez, what is it now? Over 100? 132. As of, wow. it just went up five bucks last month. And so wow. it's it's more than double from when Ooh. we first moved there. So, uh, yeah, uh, I will, you know, say what you want about uh, Mayor Bloomberg. 
because uh, that's when it, the uh, the transit prices went way up. Uh, say what you want about him, but he at least was smart enough to know, hey, you've got a captive audience. We need revenue. Uh, <laughs> you know, people can't live without their my, my Metro card. So let's right. let's my, 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 you know, uh, <laughs> make them pay for it. <laughs> jack them up, you know, for sure. So number 19. Number 19, Bill Withers and his song Harlem from 1971, taken from his debut album, Just As I Am. Harlem is a vivid and detailed picture of life in Harlem in the early 1970s. Being poor in the summer with no air conditioning, being poor in the winter with no heating, Saturday night parties that are out of control, Sunday morning church gatherings where the faithful are crossing paths with the heathens just coming home from partying. In Withers' eyes, Harlem is at the crossroads of everything bad and good about the center of New York City's African-American Mecca. Chris? Yeah, really evocative uh, imagery uh, in the song. And Withers could just sing anything. Like, oh, yeah. You know, like you could give Withers Mary, Mary, Mary had a little lamb. Yeah. And, and he would make it into like the most soulful, most <laughs> uh, wistful uh, yeah. thing imaginable. He just had that kind of voice, you know, and uh, yeah. just really incredible range. And I mean, I love the fact that this is it's, it's basically an acoustic folk song in some ways. It's, you know, mm. it's got some art. It's got it, it's obviously R&B, but it's but it's got some folk uh, qualities and, and Withers wraps around it just beautifully. And, yeah, the description of Harlem, uh, that is a perfect uh, distillation at like uh, seven in the morning. You've got uh, you've got some folks that have been in the all night bar that are coming home. You know, you, you stay at the bar until 6 a.m. and then you drunkenly go over and eat eggs at the uh, <laughs> at the wreck at the diner next door. Yeah. And so you have yeah. those folks, uh, you know, crossing the old church ladies. That are getting ready. <laughs> that are getting ready for first service. Uh, yeah. That that is a perfect, perfect New York image. So great, great, great song. Speaking of imagery, the next song has it, and then some. Number eighteen. U2 with Angel of Harlem from 1988. When U2 put out their half-live, half-studio double album, Rattle and Hum, just one year after the blockbuster success of 1987's The Joshua Tree, it received a lot of blowback and negative yeah. criticism for its, well, bloated and indulgent nature and its self-important posturing. Now, while the criticism wasn't completely unfounded, if you go back and listen carefully to the album with fresh ears, you will find more than a handful of outstanding tracks, some of them among, among the, band, the best the band ever did. One of them was this single, a soaring R&B soul anthem that packs in as many New York City references as possible in one song. JFK Airport, the Birdland Jazz Club on 53rd Street, and the irresistible hook of the title in the chorus all blend together in Bono's expressionistic tapestry and ode to, again, the mecca of America's African-American experience. While specifically a tribute to legendary jazz singer Billie Holiday, who made her name in New York, the passion behind the performance belies what could easily be interpreted as a love letter to the heart of New York City itself. Chris? Yeah, and, and a song that showed that U2 was capable of adding a really great horn arrangement uh, to one when of their songs. they wanted to, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and, and they didn't do it much. And uh, this is like one of the least intrusive uh, mm -hmm. uh, performances by The Edge. You know, right. the edge doesn't define this song it's the rhythm it's the horns right. and it's 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 the it's a riff song it's 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 a rhythm song it's an r&b song 
And uh, yeah, and it, it really is a great ode to Billie Holiday as well. And it was, it was one of their, but it was, like you said, you know, that, that song, uh, that album is maligned because again, it, it has the live uh, songs, mm-hmm. which are kind of like a monument to itself or the yeah. band is making a monument to itself, but the, the studio stuff, is pretty underrated and i think that they do hit some poignancy notes uh right. within it you know i mean i've never been a huge fan of the the bb king song there uh, when love comes mm. to town but yeah. other other than that i mean you've got some really uh some really strong stuff this being probably uh one of the two or three best songs on the album uh right. awesome stuff number 17 the band phosphorescent with the mermaid parade from 2010 the indie folk band Phosphorescent delved full bore into country rock on their 2010 masterpiece album, Here's to Taking It Easy. And it's one of the greatest albums to ever come out from that much maligned subgenre, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. This particular waltz time ballad, while certainly not alone among the legions of songs about being in New York while missing your sweetheart is certainly one of the most beautifully and lovingly rendered songs ever recorded in that tradition. Frontman and songwriter Matthew Hoke virtually cries tears of romantic despair from his eyes as he describes the pageantry of the country's largest art parade uh, being held that is held every year in Coney Island. Chris? Yeah, it, it's kind of an, a, a neat and poignant juxtaposition where he's longing for his woman on another beach all the way across the, uh, the, the nation uh, while being on this beach in Coney Island at the mermaid parade. It's uh, right. really just kind of uh, it's, it's like a freak among the masses and, and, you know, really strong ode to loneliness. Uh, it, it's amazing to me that Matthew Hoke and, and this band didn't become bigger than they did because they had all country sensibilities that yeah. uh, a lot of others in the genre didn't, body nearly as well uh you know they they really did have that plaintiveness uh Mm. to what they were doing and uh they could really capture the emotion and the uh the pathos uh behind uh behind the lyrics and so Mm. there was there was always a nice matchup between lyrics and musical accompaniment it's almost like they arranged to the lyrics and which which made uh songs like this particularly very sweet yeah number 16 Joni Mitchell with Chelsea Morning from 1969. Back in the 1960s, the Chelsea District of New York, for those who don't know, west of 6th Avenue between 14th Street and the Upper 20s, was known as a wild, woolly, and downright gritty part of the city. Edgy, artsy, decadent, and gay-friendly, the district got an even worse reputation among the conservative crowd after Andy Warhol's controversial and exploitive art house film, Chelsea Girls, in 1966. Well, that's exactly the movie Joni Mitchell name-checks in a rather negative way in this song, and then goes on to describe how she beautifies a drab and dreary hotel room in a then-seedy Manhattan hotel. On a deeper level, it's a rather optimistic and philosophical ode to making something beautiful out of something so ugly. Chris? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so it, it, it has it, a lot of these songs, if they're not about transcendence, they touch on transcendence. And yeah. I think this is, is one of those. Uh, it's, it's the song I think of first when I think of Joni Mitchell. It's just it's a happy it's a happy sounding song. It's an upbeat song. 
and it's it's almost defiantly positive you know like you know like you just uh, just said it's funny uh, uh you know chelsea uh, just a, just a quick story maybe maybe this is a, a a non sequitur but i remember when i i used to work in chelsea for a while uh, mm. uh, uh company that i worked for they had the infinite non wisdom of moving offices to 26th and 12th into an old <laughs> warehouse which is yeah. more than a mile from the nearest subway and so, right. you know, and I would get out early. It was a job that I worked like seven to three. And so I could make appointments. Well, one time I, I needed some orthotics made for my feet. So I, I made an appointment for a podiatrist in Chelsea, mm. which, as you said, is like one of the gayest neighborhoods in the, in the, in the world. And yeah. I go into the podiatrist's office and I go to sit in the chair and I start looking around me. Well, first off, uh, he's playing like uh, that sort of uh, that house techno, that gay techno. Yeah. Yeah. And I look around and it's like nothing but like male bikini calendars and, <laughs> and posters. <laughs> and, and so so th this guy knew uh, it became pretty clear that he knew what he what audience he was catering to or <laughs> like what, what his main clientele was. And I, I, just, I just thought it was funny. I was just like, OK, I, I, I have officially hit the gay pi podiatrist's office. In, in, in Chelsea, so so the, the reputation it, it it's not exactly off base. <laughs> By the way, Judy Collins, the the folk singer, yeah, uh, she had a hit with this song before yes. Joni put out her version. Joni wrote it. Judy Collins had a hit, and then Joni put it on her record. Yeah, and the Judy Collins version really isn't all that bad either. Uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's even, a really it's a really good song. Yeah, yeah, no, it's 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 one it's a great one of, song. One of, it's one number of sixteen. <laughs> Yeah, it's yeah, number, it's number 16. 16. And, <laughs> exactly. And, and speaking of Chelsea, let's move on to number 15. Not a coincidence. Right. Not this one's definitely not a coincidence. Number 15, Leonard Cohen with Chelsea Hotel number two from 1974. From one Chelsea Hotel song to another. In this one, everyone's favorite horny Buddhist recounts a sexual tryst supposedly with Janis Joplin and even explicitly describes the setting for a blowjob. While in almost any other inferior songwriter's hands, this subject matter would come across as lewd and tawdry. <laughs> Just listen to Kiss's room service from the same era. <laughs> with, with, with Leonard Cohen, there's an unshakable melancholy and a rumination uh, on an era of wild and crazy behavior without consideration of the consequences. Chris? Yeah, we, we, we just made podcast history is probably the only one that's ever contrasted Chelsea Hotel number two with room service. <laughs> wow, uh, that that's actually a pretty good call in terms of uh, an analytical framework. Yeah, this, this song manages to be dreamlike and gorgeous, uh, even yeah. though, like you said, the subject uh, matter is, is somewhat uh, scandalous. Uh, I've always loved the lyric where you, when he's quoting her as saying, I prefer handsome men, but for you, I'll make an exception. Yeah. Uh, you know, as, as being a, I consider myself a fairly handsome guy, but I'm, but I'm also five, four, which has its limitations. <laughs> so, uh, I've, I've always, I always like to think that, uh, my wife's making an exception for me too. Oh, shucks. <laughs> All right. Number 14, the band Interpol and their song NYC from 2002. Now, chalk this one up to an old saying that an old British friend of mine introduced me to. The sun shines on a dog's ass every now and then. Interpol, 
Interpol were part of that wave of indie hipster New York bands of the early 2000s, early noughties, that got absurd amounts of hype from music critics, especially in New York. Interpol was also easily one of the worst of those bands with their bland, forgettable, joyless, hookless brand of insipid cookie cutter post-punk. But hey, this song is truly amazing. It's the only song where they ever convincingly escaped their Joy Division fixation and managed to, with its swelling and widescreen epic guitar sound, sound like Mogwai and Radiohead condensed into a shimmering, yearning pop nugget. Singer Paul Banks has lost faith in his romantic partner, uh, uh, ever being there to support him, so he throws his arms open to the majesty of New York City to fulfill and heal him. Chris? Yeah, this is one of those songs that, that proves that every once in a while a scarecrow can get his brain and a tin man can get his heart. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, like you said, Interpol, yeah, I, I've never been able to stand this band either. But I will admit, good ballad and uh, good sentiment. And again, it's, it's, it's a lonely in New York City song and yeah. uh, or a, a reawakening. So a lot of these songs... It's there's one part of it is loneliness. One part of it is reawakening. There's the excitement of renewal. There's the burnout of, of, of day to day. There's all this, this range of emotions. It's all about experience. And uh, here again, they really capture the ex one part of the experience of living in New York. Uh, neat stuff. Right. Number 13, Simon and Garfunkel again with the 59th Street Bridge song, parentheses, feeling groovy from 1966. From the heavy heartedness of the previous song, we go into probably the most lighthearted on this list. Yeah. And also one of the most irresistibly charming and frankly, one of the best. Leave it to Paul Simon, a nice Jewish boy from Flushing, Queens, to write a jaunty little folk pop ode to the bridge that connects Queens to Manhattan without sounding even the slightest bit corny or trite. And you, uh, you'll you find this hard to believe, Chris, but I never bought weed from the 59th Street Bridge. Oh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Actually, uh, the 59th Street Bridge is what I walked across uh, to get home on 9-11. So uh, did I. <laughs> yeah, there you go. But uh, not not feeling groovy. Not not feeling groovy there, but uh, but one thing I'll say about the song, da 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 da, da. Uh, just a really happy, uh, peppy song. It's just it's it's a won wonderfully, uh, uh, like you said, lighthearted, upbeat, and positive song. It's only a minute and forty three seconds long, but it's a really long minute and forty three seconds because right. of how joyous uh, the song is. I I think this uh, song belongs much higher on this list. I would have put it closer to the top five. Uh, but, wow. you know, once in a while you have to make, uh, you know, you have to make compromises uh, in, uh, in these things. And so it, it ends up at lucky number 13. Right. Higher than Interpol. Yeah. Well, good. <laughs> <laughs> number 12, Bobby Womack with across 110th street from 1973. 
one of several songs about Harlem on this list, as you you listeners may have noticed. This is, I think, or Chris probably thinks too, the second best one. Wait until we get to number three on this list. And comes off the soundtrack to the 1972 black exploitation film of the same name. The single came out one year later. Soul singer Bobby Womack takes the usual black exploitation movie soundtrack tropes the wah-wah pedal guitar, the dramatically sweeping strings, the tight and punchy rhythm, and sharpens them to a finely honed paintbrush as he paints a stark image of Harlem, incorporating pimps, hookers, drug dealers, and junkies that's as evocative as anything Lou Reed ever wrote. However, there is a strong optimism in Womack's vision as he trusts in people's basic desire to survive and not give in. In fact, Womack has inspired me to watch that movie this weekend. I just downloaded it. Chris? Yeah, and uh, that movie is unintentionally hilarious because it's so <laughs> it's so melodramatic and over the top. And uh, strange but true, Anthony Quinn plays the white cop. <laughs> uh, nothing says Harlem like the guy who played uh, Yorba the Greek yeah <laughs> yeah yeah exactly it's uh it's a cheesy movie uh I prefer to think of it as uh the uh the credits song to Jackie Brown mm. uh, that's where it shows up in uh, Quentin Tarantino's 1997 very 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 underrated yes uh, very underrated. Uh, heist but basically it's it's a crime drama and love story all in one uh, and it's 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 really, really neat the way that uh, uh, Tarantino uses it at the end when uh, the Pam Greer character is uh, uh, foregoing a romance or a long term romance with uh, Robert Forster's character. Yeah. And she's kind yeah. of uh, in that uh, that kind of longing or that that wistful phase. And she's singing along to, to this song of all songs, mm. uh, yeah. which, we, you know, which kind of says that, you know, maybe love is a battlefield, too. Uh, so it's really, really nice. And so that's what I think of when I think of across 110th street. Right. Number 11, the Pogues with fairy tale of New York, the single released in 1987, the Pogues made their name. They were an Irish band by taking traditional Irish folk music and putting it through a prism of punk rock attitude while also giving it a firm rock and roll kick in the ass. Yep. This song doubles as not just a quintessentially New York City song. It's also a Christmas song. Yep. Well, more accurately, Christmas in New York as the background to a dysfunctional couple of Irish immigrants who arrived in New York, fell in love with each other and their dreams, and ended down in the dumps of alcoholism and drug addiction while one of them is singing the song from a prison cell. Christopher Thomas O'Connor what say you, my wee lad? Aye, aye, aye. Uh, Kristen McCall, got to give her a shout out. She uh, she plays the wife or the girlfriend uh, yeah. part uh, of, of this couple. And yeah, it, it, it doubles as a great Christmas song, too, because it's like you know, Christmas is one of those times where, you know, if you're if you haven't had a great year, Christmas, it's always like, where did it all go wrong, man? Where did it all go wrong? So, you know, yeah. I've had some depressing Christmases in my life. And so. Uh, this kind of kind of captures that uh, beautifully. You can't call it one of the best Christmas songs ever made, but it's 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 one of the most unusual Christmas songs uh, for <laughs> sure. And so and calling it Fairy Tale of New York uh, kind of uh, marks the Pogues trademark humor 
they had a, yeah. a real deadpan, real sort of uh, what what would you call it? Almost gallows humor. Yes, definitely. Uh, that uh, that this song uh, definitely uh, captures. And I like how it starts off as like being this like beautiful, heartbreaking ballad, and then like revs up into into sort of uh, sort of a folk duel or a folk mm. duo uh, performance duet. Yeah, right. Yeah. Good yeah. stuff. Speaking speaking of gallows humor, yeah. ooh, boy, does, does this next song have it? Number ten, the Heartbreakers, not Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Another band called the Heartbreakers with their single "Born to Lose" from 1977. Johnny Thunders was the lead guitarist and one of the creative forces behind the early 1970s glam punk icons, the New York Dolls. They were mean, nasty loved to wear women's clothing and didn't give a fuck what you thought about it. Mm -hmm. And judging from interviews with them from that period, they sweat, bled, talked, walked, and breathed New York City in all its subterranean sordid splendor. So when Thunders, a notorious uh, heroin junkie who co-authored Chinese Rocks, with fellow junkie and Ramon's bassist, D.D. Ramon, <laughs> when he formed his own band, The Heartbreakers, and cut the skating, this skating single, Born to Lose, about how hard life in the city was, there was no doubt Thunders was talking about The Big Apple. One of the single greatest punk rock songs ever recorded, it has the immortal line, living in a jungle, ain't so, it ain't so hard, living in the city will eat out your heart. Chris? Yeah, you stole my thunder because, well, you stole my Johnny Thunders because because <laughs> I was going to quote that lyric too. I I, I yeah. love that it, it it is an immortal uh, lyric, and that 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 chorus is born to lose because it's it's a great anthem for anybody who's ever felt like a fuck up. Yeah, for sure, totally. All right, number nine, LCD Sound System with New York, I love you, but you're bringing me down from two thousand seven. I mentioned earlier how this how this band. The Strokes and Vampire Weekend were probably the big three of 21st century New York bands. Well, in my opinion, LCDC, LCDC, LCD were the best <laughs> with their sharp, sleek, unbeatable mix of disco and funk-fueled indie dance music. This track, however, off their masterpiece album, Sound of Silver, isn't a dance song at all. It's a dramatic piano ballad dedicated not to a lost lover, but to the to New York City's lost dirtiness, a condemnation of the gentrification that has gripped the city and priced out the middle and working classes since the 1990s and stripped it of its, well, at least in LCD main man James Murphy's eyes, its rugged heart and sweaty soul. Yes, pre-Giuliani New York was dangerous and crime-ridden. Aside from being more affordable, it also had its own flavor, its own culture, a uniqueness that wasn't smothered by nonstop wall-to-wall Starbucks and the Gap, not overrun by rich trust fund kids who want to remake the city into their caricatured Disneyland version of New York. This is not only one of the best songs on this list, but it's the one whose sentiment I identify with the most. Chris? Yeah, I, I agree too, because remember, we lived there uh, in, yeah. in the uh, late 90s and, and aughts, yeah. up yeah. to the mid-aughts, and, and that's what was happening. And 
really you can call this uh, song you can really call the elegy of williamsburg yeah because <laughs> it's really about uh, about those folks that you know that were very diy williamsburg was a very diy right uh, and uh very sort of uh uh, vagabond, uh, right. uh, you know, shared experience uh, type of neighborhood. And a, a lot of these right. bands, the, the Strokes and uh, mm-hmm. James Murphy and his, all of his DFA bands, including LCD, they came from. And so it's an elegy of that. And uh, it turns out Mike Bloomberg is really the uh, the bad guy. Like, you mm, know, our, billion, sure. our billionaire mayor yeah. thinks he's a king uh, yeah. being the line. But uh, I, what I love about this song is it, it's got a poignancy and a, and a point of view to it that's pretty unique. But also, it's what takes uh, the sound of silver or sound of silver, the uh, the album, from mm. being very good into a masterpiece. Yeah, it's, it's what elevates this album into one of the best, uh, one of the top five records of the two thousands. The uh, yeah, yeah. Well, the naughties, but also, but just the two thousands, like this yeah. this century. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the the top five rock albums of of this century, and I think this one is is what gets it over the top. And yeah, fuck gentrification. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I sometimes I find myself like I just this week I found myself pining to maybe give one the city one last shot. That I yeah. found myself really missing New York, and then I'm like, you know what? Fuck that. There's a reason I left. Uh, I left for I left for good. I mean, I lived out in the burbs, but I left for good in 2014 because when you're 38. At that, yeah. with, with everything that had happened that this song kind of captures, the party was over, mm-hmm. man, you know? Yeah. And so uh, if I wanted to go back, I'd be trying to live in the past. Can't do it. Yeah. Well, you can live in the past with the next song. Uh, number eight, The Rolling Stones with Shattered from 1978. Speaking about New York back when it was down and dirty, here are the Stones with one of their most convincing stabs at punk and new wave from some girls, their last masterpiece album, supposedly written by Mick Jagger while he was riding in the back of a New York city taxi. One would think he was disparaging the city in a vicious diatribe while love and hope and sex and dreams are still surviving on the streets. He's lamenting the shallowness of the upscale Manhattan elite with their cocktail parties and some kind of fashion loneliness and sex and sex and sex and sex people hungry for success 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 does it matter i'll admit it's a bit rich to hear a philistine like jagger say that quote quite enjoy (laughs) greed and sex that's what makes our town the best you know yeah really mick anyway yeah i was gonna say (laughs) yes 7th Avenue, West Side, bedbugs, maggots, crawling out of the Big Apple. Wow, Mick must be pissed off. But hold on. The very, very cheeky way he delivers his lyrics belies a serious irony, which means there must be some affection he has for New York. Whereas James Murphy earnestly pours out his soul in the previous song, Jagger, rather true to form, really, shows his love for the city like a true New Yorker, full of snarky attitude and wink-wink humor. Chris? Yeah, this is a case, and you alluded to it, where you can uh, admire the narration, if not the narrator. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You know, it's like you got to take that with a grain of salt that that, uh, if anybody soaked up the excesses of which he complains about, it was Jagger. But uh, yeah. But the thing about the song that is just odd to me is that it really equates sex with physical dirt. You know, yeah. it's a dirty city. And why is it a dirty city? And, and that deep down in the dirt, there's a whole lot of sex going on. 
Right. You know, it's almost like, you know, it's like he's uh, having sex on the floor of a roach infested, dirty ass, dusty motel, you know, like one of those flop houses that you get in, uh, uh, gosh, like up in Washington Heights is full yeah. of uh, full of these flop houses where you go in for an hour to get a low job. Uh, so it's just it, it's a very strange metaphor. But uh, other than that, I think you hit. The but but it's, a, it's a it's a very gripping and effective uh, metaphor. Sure. And the fact that this this is probably the most may be the most visually evocative song on this whole list. Yeah, it, it could be. It, it, it really is. It's it, it doesn't it spares no prisoners. That's for sure. Yeah. I mean, if, if there's anyone who can find the sex in anything, it's Mick Jagger. Well, yeah, no shit. You know, <laughs> I mean, he, he, you know, he's the embodiment of the old joke of uh the guy who finds the genie on the bottle and the guy says, you know, the genie says you can have any wish that you want. And the guy says, I want to be surrounded by pussy. So the genie turns him into a tampon. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Number seven, Elton John with Mona Lisa and Mad Hatters from 1972. His album of that year, Honky Chateau, may have had Rocket Man, but this is probably my all-time favorite Elton John song. Elton's lyricist Bernie Taupin has always been a rather elusive, enigmatic writer, which has always been a good thing since his words always lent Elton's grandiose pop rock a, a subliminal and subversive edge. Beyond referencing Spanish Harlem, Broadway, and the subway, Taupin really gets at the heart of the class conflict and divide that has always existed in New York's cold gray heart. He'll go his way alone, grow his own, his own seeds shall be sown in New York City, but that's out of necessity. Why? The chorus gives it away. Sons of bankers, sons of lawyers turn around and say good morning to the night for unless they see the sky, but they can't. And that is why they know not if it's dark outside or light. The rich don't give a fuck and never will, even and especially in New York. Chris? Yeah, uh, that that's another aspect that we haven't really touched on. But th this song, I think, beautifully captures is there's a class divide. Yeah. Uh, you know, there's there's a cultural divide. And, you know, you can talk about the light and the darkness or, you know, the bright lights and the dark streets and all of that. But you don't really talk about it in terms of money looking down on people that don't have money that yeah if, if if there's one place in the world where the money does not trickle down mm. it's it's new york yeah uh it, it it's it's a different world when you have uh money uh in new york it's uh you know it's it's especially in the 70s you know richard Pryor had a joke that uh, cocaine was god's gift to people who made too much money <laughs> uh, and I think that uh, New York was was like that. And so I think this city kind of captures that, 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 that people are, you know, the, the rich are just clueless about the poor. The poor really clueless about the rich. Why? Because, you know, the, the rich ain't ever, ever going to let the poor in unless they're like, you know, serving the drinks or like you know, <laughs> cleaning the sheets. So right. there you go. Yeah. Number six, Simon and Garfunkel once again with the sound of silence from 1965, the famous electric folk rock version that came out in 65, it originally came out on an album in 1964 in a very sparse acoustic version. But we're talking about this version, the, ver the single that came out in the fall of 65. As far as commercial success and enduring status as an iconic pop song goes, this probably should be number one. 
But if we're judging purely on the basis of being about or taking place in New York, there are a few others at rate above this one. In any case, Paul Simon never mentions New York by name, nor does he reference any streets or places by name. But if you know anything about Paul Simon's work, you know there's only one big city he's usually talking about. Yep. <laughs> I briefly mentioned earlier when discussing the Sting song on our list about whenever you're in a big city, the more crowded and the more people there are, the more people's barriers come up and the more the feeling of loneliness creeps in that loneliness loneliness leads to darkness and loneliness and this song at least the way i interpret it is simon's version of his very own dark night of the soul new york city style chris yeah i i don't think that there's a better lyric uh that captures the uh the down part of living day to day in new york than hello yeah. darkness my old friend yeah. uh just really uh, a beautiful uh, evocation of of that feeling of that mood uh of right. that uh you know that part of new york you, you when you go to new york you kind of give up part of yourself to the city you know mm -hmm. you you know it, there's you can you can be anonymous but you also become the new york city version of yourself which, right you know some days is not the best thing and so uh, yeah. there, there's a grief yeah. There's almost a grief to that. And so right. hello, darkness, my old friend. It's uh, me grieving my old life and grieving that uh, that New York is so you know schizophrenic in a way. Right. Yeah. Anyway, well, it gets a bit darker next. <laughs> uh, number five, Stevie Wonder with Living for the City from 1973. Stevie Wonder is from Detroit. But boy, did he ever write the best and most striking stranger in a strange land tale of poor, innocent kids coming to New York ever yeah. written. Right. Peter Gabriel went on about a poor Puerto Rican kid lying down like a lamb on Broadway. But Stevie gives us the story of a poor Mississippi kid who takes a bus to New York and in his first day gets busted by the cops and sentenced to 10 years in prison for just walking across the street with a drug dealer's stash. Yikes. Overall, right. New York is basically portrayed in allegorical terms. The big city is just a metaphor for how cruel and unfair the world can be to poor Black Americans. It's also one of the funkiest, chunkiest grooves Wonder ever committed to tape off what I think is his best album, Inner Visions. Chris? Yeah, agreed about his best album, Inner Visions. And also, I think musically, uh, I think this, uh, not easily, but I think musically, this is the best song on the entire list. If we're just talking about the music and Maybe. the structure yeah. and yeah. the arrangement and all of that, sure. it's it's just a rousing piece of music. Right. Uh, it like you said, it's got that funky beat. It's got that uh, that you know, sort of soaring choruses and the outro. It's one of the mm. best outros, uh, right. like kind of you know, stomp along. It's not even sing along. It's a stomp along uh, yeah. outro. Uh, it's just incredible. And you know, Wonder was just such a talent. And I think just even musically, he captures that uh, that lurk that lurking danger of the city, or the or those sure. uh, you know, uh, it's it's a city where you can be anonymous, but it's 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 really easy. It's a, it's not a city you want to get in trouble in, uh, right. you know, for sure. And I think that he kind of captures that menace, uh, mm. but he captures that menace in a funk groove, which is right. a really really neat trick. And, and Wonder was a genius, and. Uh, this this musically to me is the best song on the record 
or on 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 this list. Right. Number four, the Ramones with Rockaway Beach from 1977. Off their third album, Rocket to Russia, this is, believe it or not, the highest charting single the Ramones ever had in America, peaking at number 66. I could see it. It isn't, it isn't surprising, and frankly, it, it should have been higher. Many of, the, many of the songs on this list are about the rougher and darker edges of New York, but this song is pure, sheer, unadulterated joy from start to finish. I've always said the Ramones were essentially sped up, rocked out Beach Boys melodies. And this song epitomizes that. The song is nothing more than about going on a bus to Rockaway Beach, located in Rockaway, Queens, with a group of friends, but it's so incessantly catchy and most importantly, unaffected in its sincerity and innocence that you can't help but get caught up in it. This is not only the Ramones' own, but also it is all of New York City's Surfing USA. Chris? Oh, absolutely. It's the happiest of all the happy songs. Boy, yeah. are, boy, are they glad to be on that bus and having their outings at the Rockaway Beach. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, they, you know, there's not much intellectualism uh, to this to this song. It's just let's let's get away and let's get away to a great place. Uh, <laughs> I, I've never been to Rockaway Beach. Have you? No, I, I, I want to go. I'm, I plan to go to New York in the near future and I will go there. Yeah, I was going to say, you got to be a tourist. You got to take a, a photo of yourself in Rockaway Beach and post it in our curmudgeonly community, man. Yeah. Wearing a Ramones t-shirt. Yeah. Wearing your Ramones t-shirt. That's what you got to do. <laughs> All right. Number three, the Velvet Underground with I'm Waiting for the Man from 1967. We're getting close to number one. Lou Reed is back, this time with the band that kickstarted his career and revolutionized rock music forever, although it took a decade or so for people to catch on. Nevertheless, Coming off the VU's unbelievably important and influential self-titled, with Nico, debut album, this song showcases Reed's literary author's eye for detail in vividly describing a scene that essentially tells a story. In the early 1960s, Reed, born in Brooklyn, teenaged years spent in Long Island, went to Syracuse University in central New York State, like both of yours truly curmudgeons, yep. and would come back home every semester break. It was during this time that he developed a heroin addiction, eventually bringing it back with him to Syracuse and even, even selling it out of his dormitory. Mm -hmm. This is coming from Anthony DeCurtis's brilliant uh, biography of Lou Reed. You should check it out whenever you get a chance, if any of you are Lou fans. In any case, this rather or nearly biographical song is a harrowing, impressionistic depiction of the throes of addiction, with Reed explicitly putting you right in the center of Harlem on 125th Street and Lexington Avenue as he, or the narrator, is waiting for his man in a big straw hat who is never early and always late. Local people in the neighborhood go up to him, hey, white boy, what you doing uptown? Hey, white boy, are you chasing our women around? Oh, no, the furthest from his mind, and not because he's racist, he just wants that smack. It is a sordid Hubert Selby novel in a rock and roll song with a savage, incessant, head-crushing groove to drive it home. Chris? Yeah, uh, this song is incredible. I, lo I love the riff. I love the feel. 
uh, of it. And it, it really does kind of capture that, that inherent scuzziness that, that yeah. uh, Reed is, is singing about. And uh, here's the thing that always kind of cracks me up about the song. So, you know, the second line and it is, you know, I'm waiting for my man. Then he says $26 in my hand. <laughs> yeah. Well, th this is 1967. $26 yeah. could probably buy you a shitload of heroin. So, <laughs> back you know, then, yeah. I was well, like I said, he, I, he was taking it back with him to Syracuse. Oh, I got you. So, well, there you go. That 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 explains the twenty six dollars. I always wondered about that because I was like, "Holy <laughs> crap! That must have been like at least ten balloons." <laughs> Dude, read the read the Anthony De Curtis book. He was selling it out of his dorm room back in the early sixties in Syracuse. Hey, in, SU, hey, in the hey. on the SU campus. Yeah, I know. We're we're a couple of Syracuse University alums, so it's like, wait a second. People were selling drugs out of their dorm rooms in Syracuse. <laughs> Holy no. shit. No, no way, man. Yeah. But yeah. Sy Syracuse is one of those towns like there was uh, the Marshall Street neighborhood. But other than that, basically, you know, like drinking and getting stoned was what you did. <laughs> that was that, that, that was kind of the, the pastime up there. Yeah. It was uh, it was really bizarre. Yeah. So. All right. Number two, Lou Reed again with Walk on the Wild Side from 1972. Yes, folks, Lou again. I wasn't kidding when I said he was the definitive quintessential New York City rock star. And uh, here he is on his most famous song and biggest hit. And frankly, one of the most notorious songs of the 1970s. Lyrically, it's a person by person name check of all the colorful characters who populated Andy Warhol's social circle during the mid to late 1960s, particularly the gay, transvestite, and transgender folks of that scene. But you don't need lyrics referencing hustling in New York and coming out from Long Island to know that this is a New York song. Uh, the jazzy, airbrushed drums, the sultry saxophone giving a soft touch, the mystery film noir evoking string section, it's New York's ineffable sexuality put on a delectable stick. Chris? Yeah, this may be the most sensual song on this yeah. record, you know, with the and the colored girls sing do 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 uh yeah, and so it's just it, there's a sensuality. It's not even a sexuality, it's a sensuality and it's a, yeah. a real there's a real depth uh to the sound, there's real texture uh mm. going on there and you know, given that it's it's probably the catchiest, most uh, tuneful song about uh, transvestite prostitutes uh, <laughs> of all time. Uh, it's a really neat trick. Uh, you know, God, God bless Transformer era Blue Reed. He got away with a lot. <laughs> he did. Totally yeah. did. And so uh, if there's anyone on this list that could compete with Lou Reed to, as being the most New York guy there, it, it would be the person that is behind our number one song about New York City. Arturo, what is that number one song? It is Billy Joel with New York State of Mind from 1976. This list is all about rock songs that are about or take place in New York. This song happens to hit both those criteria. Like the Avid Brothers song we talked about earlier, this is about coming back to the warm, welcome bosom of the Big Apple. But there's more going on here besides romantically referencing riding a greyhound on the Hudson River line, Chinatown, Riverside, and the New York newspapers. 
Joel was living in Los Angeles for a while in the early 1970s, and his career didn't go so well there. Uh, he gives it away with the line, it comes down to reality, and it's fine with me because I've let it slide. Uh, he's back in New York. He's glad he's back in New York, but the melancholy mood of the song combined with the sadness and the aching in his voice leads one to believe he'll never find the contentment he really wants. But yeah. isn't that what being a native New Yorker is all about? Yeah. You miss it when you leave, but you're never fully satisfied when you come back. It's a quandary that can only be psychologically fostered by a city that is defined by its dualities and contradictions, of which there are many. Billy Joel, particularly peak period Joel of the mid-1970s through to the early 80s, was a really underrated lyricist in regard to the richness and depth he was able to convey. New York State of Mind, his conflicted love letter to his hometown, is the perfect example of that. Chris? Yeah, uh, the there's something about uh, he's right uh, uh, about coming back to New York. And I, I kind of experienced this a little bit because I remember I was out in Phoenix for a couple of years. And then uh, so I took a couple of years off and then came back to New York in 2005. And I kind of got that. It's like, you know, you're you're glad to be back. But, oh, man, I'm back. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. there is there is a certain, uh, like you said, that the contradictory uh, mindset of. Uh, I'm I'm content to be here for now because <laughs> I understand that there's nothing else, no, no, no place in the world like New York. But oh man, there's no place else in the world quite like New York, man. Eh. You know, <laughs> yeah. and and like you said, so that capturing that duality, so it's not only you know talking up the city and and contrasting it with other uh, places. Uh, it's also uh, about, like you said, the the uh, the return of the prodigal son, not exactly on the best of terms. Uh, right. My favorite thing about this song is how he uh, that line about the New York Times and the New York Daily News. Yeah. And, and sort of being like the two like the, the yin and the yang yeah. of, of New York and sort of captures the dual personality. That's a perfect way to do it, especially because I'm an old newspaper guy. Yeah. And I love that. I love that uh, that juxtaposition really really awesome really awesome and there you go folks the top 40 songs about new york ending with new york state of mind go seek it out uh as soon as you can uh as we are uh want to do uh in these episodes uh, at when we end them we invite everyone to join our curmudgeonly community on facebook art is still in gear list mania for studio albums uh by here i got that right finally uh, yes. Yeah. Just did 1981. 1982 is on the way. Yes, uh, it is. Yet we've had some vibrant conversations up there. I, I will become a more uh, frequent participant uh, in the in the community. I've been a little negligent, but I'm going to be back up there, and it's going to be a, a rousing uh, time had by all. Uh, if you uh, disagree with anything on this list, if you think that we missed uh, any songs, or uh, you're, you're really mad that we had fucking Billy Joel. Uh, <laughs> at number one uh, feel free to write us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com uh, we are still on twitter or x or whatever the hell it's called for the less and less that that place has become accessible so go check us out but I don't know if I'm as enthusiastic as I used to be about that and then also uh, we promise we'll make a spotify playlist with all 40 of the songs uh, so that you will have an instant access reference as you go through the list and we 
talk lovingly and gushingly about these songs. 